Welcome to episode 31 of The History Files. I'm Gordon Fry. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus uh, due to mostly being way busy with a whole lot of other things. Uh, I gave a speech, or a, <laughs> ran a panel. Yeah. I gave a panel at uh, the Emerald City Writers Conference a couple of weekends ago, and that was a whole lot of fun. Got a lot of really good reviews from that one. On historical firearms. On historical firearms. Uh, actually, mostly to do with the West, with Western expansions. I believe I started with uh, Lewis and Clark. Ended up eh, pretty much around 1800, or pardon me, about 1900 or so. The, uh, the whole thing was, was a blast. They do a very, very professional job of running their conference. I was, I'm always very impressed. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just lots of things been going on. It's that time of year. We've got some exciting things coming up for you in this this uh, next chunk of episodes that we'll be recording, and um, we're kind of looking forward to bringing you some new and exciting things. In this episode, I want to talk a little bit about the Pony Express. Actually, I'm going to talk a lot about the Pony Express, uh, among a few other things. And I've got a, I think, a really cool personal side note. Uh, to interject into the Pony Express history, but I'll get into that in a moment. That all being said, let's move on to our history headlines. November 5th, 1605, the gunpowder plot to blow up the English Parliament failed when Guy Fox was prevented from lighting the fuse to ignite some 30 barrels of gunpowder in a room which had been rented out by the conspirators immediately under the throne from which James I was to open the parliamentary session. It has been claimed that Fox was the only man to enter Parliament with honest intentions. <laughs> November 11, 1620. The Mayflower Compact was signed by pilgrims aboard the Mayflower. The importance of this pact was that it was neither a dictate from a London corporation, such as that of the Virginia Company, nor a royal charter, such as Pennsylvania's, but rather a contract written and signed by the very people who would live under its policies. November 10, 1871, journalist and explorer Henry Stanley found the missing Dr. David Livingstone in Central Africa and made his famous comment, Dr. Livingstone, I presume? November 11, 1918. At 1100 hours, the war to end all wars finally ended, bringing a momentary end to the massive slaughter which befell Europe in the first half of the 20th century. The resulting Versailles Treaty, which punished Germany for its actions during the war and dissected the Ottoman Empire into a multitude of smaller states, has been labeled as one of the main causes for World War II and the present mess in the Middle East. November 4th, 1922, Howard Carter discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt. It was the first major tomb found which hadn't been already looted long since and provided a marvelous bounty for Egyptologists to study and analyze, a process which is still ongoing today. 
In fact, there just recently has been a discovery of yet another chamber in the tomb which is yet to be opened, and much speculation has been forthcoming about just what this chamber might contain. November 3, 1957, the Soviet Union sent the first animal, a dog named Laika, into space aboard the Sputnik 2. Needless to say, they didn't bring her back, and Laika died in orbit. And if you want to hear a really cool song about it, a very sad episode in our history, check out Jonathan Colton's Space Doggity, which he wrote for a song, song contest a few years ago that uh, I remember listening to. The, the challenge was to write a song in the style of David Bowie's Space Oddity. Anyway, it's a really sweet song. It's one of my favorite Jonathan Colton songs. I highly recommend it. Moving on. November 12th, 1981, the space shuttle Columbia was launched for the second time. It was the first time a space vehicle was used more than once. And I wish we still had that kind of space program going on. I guess we kind of do with the International Space Station. We certainly continue to use it. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Russians have to uh, provide the taxi to get there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, at least we're collabing with somebody. <laughs> sort of, yes. <laughs> This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section today, we've got a a few interesting things. Uh, First off, uh, via Netflix, in fact, both of our um, visual things are via Netflix. Conveniently, uh, I've been watching, or I had been watching, ended up binge-watching it and using it all up, which made me sad, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, Wonderful, uh, light in tone, uh, set in the late 1920s in Australia. They are, as they say, murder mysteries. And our uh, protagonist is this fabulous Miss Fisher, who's spunky and clever uh, and also a mature woman. She, I'm not sure what age she's supposed to be in the show. Probably, I'm guessing, in her late 30s. But it's nice to see an actress over the age of 40 playing, you know, a glamorous, fun role on a television show. And uh, I get tired of the children sometimes. But really, really good stuff. I would, I would call it about equivalent in tone to, say, Castle, which is another show I really like to watch. Um, so it's not super heavy, but it can, you know, it has some dark themes at times. Really, really nice, really fun. And great costume design and great production design. Um, the second thing I just started is uh, Fleming, The Man Who Would Be Bond, which is a biopic, or I should say a, a series, about Ian Fleming. And it look, I, there's only, I think, four, maybe five episodes. There's one season. I just watched the first one. Really pretty good. There was, there's a couple of misses with uh, hair and costuming in it for the period. It starts off right at the beginning of World War II in England. But other than that, it's good. Stars uh, Dominic Cooper, who uh, comic shows fans will recognize as um, Tony Stark's dad from the um, Agent Carter series. He's wonderful. And some other really cool people in there. So I recommend Fleming, the man who would be Bond. Also want to mention that we just watched the latest Bond thriller yesterday, uh, Spectre, which was actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Fun stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. The next book I'd like to talk about is Generations, The History of America's Future, 1584 to 2069 by William Strauss and Neil Howe. Uh, This is the first book 
that they put out in 1991. They have a second one they put out a few years later uh, called Generations, which more deeply explored their concept. Um, did I say Generations? Anyway, yes. The second one, the, the fourth turning, pardon me. Ah. At any rate, the this these books, um, this concept that Howe and Strauss have come up with is based on the, con the idea that uh, people are very much influenced by the generation in which they were born. The circumstances uh, seem to echo through history uh, of each generation effectively behaving much like one uh, four generations prior to, or three generations prior to it, I should say. Uh, and these echoes, based not only on experiences, but also on how they're raised, the how each generation raises the next one helps cause that next generation to be what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's um, it's a fascinating concept. And as, as a historian, I'm very intrigued by it. I don't know if I buy into it completely, but it has a lot of merit and certainly is worth digging further into. So when you look at nature versus, versus nurture, they're leaning pretty heavily on the nurture. Right. Correct. Uh, and as you know, they point out, and even in the introduction, that individuals are still individuals, but as a general group, they tend to think in a similar way and act in a similar way. There's always outliers, but the majority of these people in you know a generation, and and they're only studying the United States and sure. their immediate ancestors in England, uh, but. It, it certainly it would be fascinating if anybody else is, is um, digging into the same concept in other countries. You know, like basically, is there a European version of this? Is there a, mm. um, uh, a Chinese version of this? Things like that. Um, but it's really a cool uh, road to travel down just to, to see, does this hold up anywhere else? It's, so it's pretty cool. Where'd you find this? I had run across it. The, the fourth turning a couple of times and um, in passing and essays I'd read on the internet and this particular book actually was loaned to me by one of my students oh um, she you know I'd mentioned the generational uh, continuity and uh, she actually had the book and she said here why don't you tell me how it ends <laughs> <laughs> she hadn't read it yet okay well it is available on Amazon in various forms um, looks and they like have a website Oh, okay. Uh, fourthturning.com. Oh, okay. Fourthturning.com. I'll make sure and put that in the show notes. And yeah, you can. It's there are enough copies out that you could get a used copy for cheap. So it's it's out there and easy to get. So that's Generations by William Strauss and Neil Howe. History lives again. Today, I'd like to talk about the Pony Express. Uh, the name itself evokes a romantic page from the history of the West. It was a time when adventurous young men could uh, go out and they battled the elements, the Indians, uh, and the clock too, um, urging their ponies across an inhospitable landscape, bringing mail from the, uh, from the eastern edge of civilization to the new settlements in the far west. Uh, the Pony Express itself was the brainchild of William Russell, one of the owners of the giant freighting firm, uh, Russell, Majors, and Waddell. Hmm. Pony Express was designed to bring letters and newspapers across the country in an astonishingly short period of time 
of 10 days. Pony Express riders started simultaneously from both ends of the route. One started at St. Joseph, Missouri, and the other started in San Francisco, California. So there was, so there was really only that one cross-country east-west route. There were, the pony, the, yeah. Yeah, there were no Pony Expresses that like went from Seattle to San Diego or something nope, like that. Nope, nope. The, the, the Pony Express only went from St. Joseph, Missouri, across what's now effectively uh, Highway 50, which is also called the loneliest highway in the in the country, um, from uh, hmm. uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, across through Utah and Okay, Nevada. and did that later become the railroad route, or no. was it a different, completely different thing? Completely different, uh, for various reasons, one of which was that the railroad was able to, well, had to follow certain geographical forms in order to yeah. <laughs> be reasonably easy. Yeah, the Pony Express was a little more flexible. Yeah, quite a bit more flexible. Um, the, the Pony Express actually only, only existed for about 19 months. But within that span, a lot of history was made. Oh, I thought it was only just like barely a year. Yeah, year and a half, okay. a little over a year and a half. Not much. Uh, it started with the California Gold Rush, or at least the, the idea started with the California Gold Rush of 1848. And the enormous numbers of people who traveled from both the United States and from the world to claim their fortunes. Uh, and in a few short years, it brought both California and Oregon into the Union as full-fledged states. This led, of course, to a communications problem mm. because um, they, the, uh, the tide of settlement, you might call it, the, had sort of leapfrogged over about a 2,000-mile swath of land. So there's all this empty land between civilization and civilization. Mm. <clears throat> and so 2,000 miles in those days was, you know, even today is a fair amount of That's distance. a long way. And it didn't matter which route you chose to get either people, goods, or messages from the East Coast to the West Coast. It could be overland, could be via ship to Panama, or around the Horn. It was still a matter of months rather yeah. than weeks to get the job done. Uh, even with the mail services um, was eventually uh, put together in the 1850s, uh, established by John Butterfield's Butterfield Overland Mail Company. It still oh. it still was a pretty tedious uh, and slow method of communication. And, and when you say overland mail service, was this by stagecoach? By stagecoach. Okay. And, of course, it carried passengers, too. And the problem, though, well, <clears throat> I'll get that in a, <laughs> to it in a okay. bit. But William Russell thought he had a better way, better idea. Well, it was a great idea, and it would have gone on for longer, if not. For technology. Yeah. Uh, technology was ra rapidly cup um, pick bleh. Spit that out. Overtaking. Uh, rapidly overtaking, rapidly catching up with muscle power throughout the world. And, um, you know, plans were already being made to push a telegraph line across the continent. Russell still, even with that, went ahead with his plans to build the Pony Express stations about 10 miles apart. Okay. Um, for most of this 2,000 miles of, uh, between, of distance between St. Joe and San Francisco. Uh, that's that's a lot of capital. He had to put a lot of money right up front 
into putting these stage these well stage stage stops. Yeah. So basically, you've got to build a building, build a place to store feed for animals, mm -hmm. build a paddock for animals. Mm-hmm. Put people there and horses and horses and 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 then outfit this place and supply it and pay them and feed them. Yeah. yeah. So it was a huge logistic logistical undertaking. And who funded it? Uh, that was part of the problem. Uh. <laughs> he did it on debt for the most part. Ooh, ouch. And it was, uh, yeah, it 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 bit him in the backside eventually. Uh, Russell placed ads in western newspapers advertising for wiry young men under 20 years old who were expert riders and preferably orphans well except for the orphan part that sounds like all the guys you used to hire to work on movies <laughs> well yeah not all of them were under 20 well that was no weird. Uh -huh. uh -huh. yeah but we're certainly you know yeah, you expert had a, riders we had a few we had a few we had some really good ones um of course, there was no shortage of applicants. Young men were thirsty for adventure, and they were promised plenty of adventure and plenty of hard work. Yeah. Uh, speaking from experience, being in the saddle for 14 hours a day is tiring. Mm -hmm. And if you're at a gallop, I, I can only imagine the fatigue from that. Yeah, uh, That would not be pleasant. But, you know, these young men could do it. The uh, two... <laughs> to support this, of course, Russell also purchased some 500 prime horses and mares, paying an average of $200 each. Holy cow. Yeah, that was about four times the going rate for a decent riding horse. Why did he pay so much? Uh, I guess he wanted the best of the best. but It sounds like he got snookered. He spent a whole lot of money, yeah. Uh, I guess he just, well, uh, Russell was one of those guys who lived large okay. and threw money around like it was going out of style and for him it definitely was yeah. <laughs> it definitely was going out, out of style uh, and in the process anyway in the process of putting this together he ended up uh, uh, buying along with his partners major major and waddell uh, he acquired the the central overland california and pikes peak express company so the um, uh, the pop Pardon me, the COCPP Express Company was also known as the Clean Out of Cash and Poor Pay. Well, there you go. There you go. Over the course of the Pony Express run, some 120 young men rode for the company. Among them, my great-great-granduncle. Oh-ho. Oh-ho. That would be Johnny Fry. Johnny Fry. Yep. And we'll get to him in just a second. Uh... Interesting, Russell did not have the U.S. mail contract in hand when he put this whole thing together, but he was perfectly confident that he would get one due to both politics and geography. The politics were the dark storm clouds of the Civil War, which were rapidly gathering over the country, and the geography was the fact that due to politicking by Southern congressmen, Butterfield's stage route, which did have the contract, ran through Arkansas and Texas, soon to be Confederate states, and uh, got to San Francisco via San Diego. Oh, what year are we in right now? Oh, I'm sorry. We're in 1860. 
Okay, yeah, that we never mentioned. I so. forgot to mention it because I know. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a problem. You know it all, we don't. I know that it was started in 1860, so we're right on the verge. Interestingly, in 1857, uh, Russell's nephew had taken the route as part of uh, this new central route as part of the... Um, Contract, freighting contract to supply the army during the Mormon War, something that we'll have to talk about one of these days. Um, anyway, discovered that even during the harshest point, part of the winter, this central route was still pretty much open. And um, so that was one of the prime motivations for Russell pushing through at this. He knew that this central route would be open. The... Um, the route was actually from St. Joseph to Denver, and then to Salt Lake City, and then on to San Francisco. Oh, okay. April 3rd of 1860, it was all ready. The riders in both San Francisco and St. Joe were ready to go. The rider from San Francisco, however, got off some three hours previous, or earlier, than the rider from St. Joe. Oh, uh, the man, The reason for that was, so in San Francisco, they already had all the mail together. Oh. And the St. Joseph run was uh, waiting mail from New York. And oh. unfortunately, the guy who was carrying the mail from New York missed the connection between De Detroit and Chicago. Oh, no. Train? Yeah. Oh, okay. And so, um, oops, slowed things down for several hours. However, at 7.15 in the evening, the rider carrying the first westbound mail was off with a boom of a cannon. And the first thing he did was he raced his horse onto a ferry, boat, <laughs> <laughs> which is, then is crossed the Missouri Joe? River. Yeah, in St. Joseph, Missouri. And is that Johnny Fry? Uh, well, yeah. Was he the first one? Okay. One of the newspapers of the day, however, this uh, newspaper called the Weekly West, identified the rider as one Mr. Billy Richardson. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Richardson, however, denied this. And in his memoirs, he named the man who others had long claimed deserved the laurels, my great-great-great-uncle, Johnny Fry. Your great-great-uncle. My great-great-great-uncle. Not great that uncle. kid in the newspapers. Yeah, not, yeah, not his, mine. Mm -hmm. uh, needless, needless to say, my, my grandfather was quite proud of the fact that his own great-uncle was the Pony Expressman to carry the first bag of, of mail, or the first mochia of mail, uh, west. And as a child, we were regaled with all kinds of cool tales of Johnny Fry. <laughs> uh, Johnny Fry. Uh, sort of like Johnny Eagle, which was toys when I was a little kid, but Johnny Fry. Uh, one of the things that always springs to mind, one of the stories, that was... Sorry, cat. We have a bad cat. <laughs> yes. yes. Surprise. The, the bad cat. Uh, anyway, one of the stories that always springs to mind was this supposed invention of the donut by one of his many female admirers. Like the donut, like you eat a donut? Yep, like you eat a donut, like the... Um, so, yeah, it was the, the donut, it was designed by one of his many female admirers. The hole in the center was there so he could skewer it with his finger as he rode by at a gallop. Um, I'm guessing this is apocryphal. I'm guessing, too, but it was still a great story. And who knows, maybe there was a young lady who made donuts and Johnny Fry and the family had never seen him before or something. I don't know. Maybe she was... Anyway. She... <laughs> it could have happened. It could have happened. I don't know. But I guess, you know, she 
you know, give him sustenance and would blow kisses as well. Yeah, I'm guessing if he was going to get food, he would have stopped. Um, no, I don't, not when he's on the, on the job. Oh, in between, in between yeah, stations. So he, yeah, he'd be galloping along in between stations and these. How far did they go before they um, had to change horses? Ten miles. Okay. So they change horses every 10 miles approximately. Yeah, that's still a pretty good stretch to gallop that, anyway. Yeah, for that horse is... is yeah, that's pretty that's rough. Good shape. Yeah, very athletic horses. Uh, one note I want to make, too, is the fact that my own great-grandfather, who was born actually two years prior to the Pony Express being born, was named John in honor of his much-beloved uncle. Ah, very good. But uh, unfortunately, Johnny did not outlive the Pony Express by very much. He was killed during the Civil War whilst uh, scouting for the Union uh, in pursuit of Confederate guerrillas. Oh, wow. He can't have been very old. Uh, no, he wasn't. He must have been, well, he was under 25. I know that. Yeah. He was uh, quite a young man. But there was plenty of young men who were killed in that war, too. Yeah. As in all wars. Uh, on, a, on an even more personal note, though, I want to mention that when we were working on the movie called Ride with the Devil, which is all about the Kansas-Missouri border war, I went and visited the Pony Express Museum in St. Joseph, and I ventured into this room that uh, had a large display of mannequins. And the display was portraying the first start for the Pony Express, complete with yep. fatherly advice a voice from one of the, these mannequins uh, <laughs> talking to his son. And it was Johnny Fry, the son, and my own great, 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 whatever, grandfather giving this advice. Yeah, that was wild. And it was, it, it was interesting. It was, I don't know if it was unnerving, but it was certainly weird. Well, not your usual museum experience. Yeah. <laughs> so, how, oh. how many people go to a museum and see, you know, a diorama of their relatives? Yeah. <laughs> not too many, unless their name is like Washington or something. Yeah. Um, it's pretty unusual. So, um, anyway, there it was. My ancestors having a conversation in this really cool diorama. The riders themselves were expected to ride at a gallop for about 10 miles to the, between stations. Uh, change horses, and then spur the fresh mount onto the next station about 10 miles away. Sometimes <laughs> that wasn't in the cards, however. Uh, this one fellow named Pony Bob Halsam, who was on the western end of the, of the route, found that the company's horses in Carson City had been commandeered by a mob out for blood oh. against a Paiute Indian attack. Oh, wow. So he got there, and none of the horses were there. Um, the um, he ended up riding his poor tired pony. I'm sure not at a gallop. No. For a total of about 75 miles. Holy cow. Between Lake Tahoe and Fort Churchill, Nevada. Then when he got there, uh, to Fort Churchill, he found that his relief rider was afraid to take the mail further. So Halsam mounted a fresh horse and continued. He ended up riding 190 miles, 18 hours. Wow. Well, at least he got a fresh horse, but still. So he got yeah a number of fresh horses, but so still. So what was the deal with the guy? What was it Salt Lake? Yeah, uh, no, or this no, was sorry. at Fort Churchill. Before, what was the guy at Fort Churchill? What was his problem? He didn't want to go uh, risk getting his head smacked in by Indians. Oh, so this Indian problem was all over the place. It was all over the Nevada, uh, yeah, Western Nevada. Um, 
he got to the end of that route and slept for eight hours, jumped on another horse and repeated it. So went back. Went back. So he <laughs> rode something like 380 miles in 36 hours of riding Ugh. with an eight-hour stretch of sleep in wow. between. That is some serious riding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not for not for us elderly folks. Uh, no. They, there's a reason they hired young guys to do this. They did. Um, one of the secrets to the Pony Express is being able to move the letters across the West in the 10 days was not only intricate planning and just logistics, this logistic nightmare that Russell had overcome, uh, but also the superb riding skills of the riders, mm -hmm. the athletic abilities of the mounts, and but also the letters themselves and their carrier. Right. Uh, the yeah, letters. You weren't sending <clears throat> packages of cookies and no. and big fat twenty-page letters on thick onion skin paper. You know, they're they're onion skin, but they were real. It was this it was tissue. Super fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the letters were on this tissue thin onion paper. Uh, as light as possible, and it cost about $3. Oh, wow. Which was serious money in 1860. Um, likewise, special edition newspapers were printed on extremely thin paper as well to bring these up-to-the-minute reports to the Far West. Uh, also, the mail bag, if you will, actually it wasn't a bag. It was uh, what's called a mochilla. It was a leather saddle cover in the Mexican style, which like Mexican expressmen's saddles had had, had for years, um, they had four pockets, one at each corner, and each of these pockets had a padlock on it. I'll have a, I'll have a link to a picture of a mochilla in the show notes because they are kind of cool. It just basically it's just like a shabrack kind of thing that fits over the whole saddle, like the, the pommel and candle stick out, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so basically what's holding it on to the horse is the rider's the butt, rider. yep. basically is your weight. And uh, and then yeah, in front of both knees is a pocket, and then behind behind your butt is another couple of pockets, and so it really doesn't hold a lot of volume. No, it's very light. It's really very no little. more than a couple of little saddlebags worth of stuff. Yeah, I think the whole thing was like twenty pounds. Yeah, and so max. And then it wasn't uh, much. Yeah, and so when you change horses, all you had to do was pull that thing up, throw it on the other horse, and go. Yep. When the rider galloped into the station, he dismounted. He himself pulled the mochia off threw it on the horse that was waiting, over the saddle of the horse that was waiting for him, and off he went, usually leaping into the saddle <laughs> on the run. The, um, the, whole, the whole operation took about two minutes. Eventually, cost overruns, excessive debt, and the end of, well, in the end, the march of technology uh, doomed the Pony Express, and the whole operation ceased by about November uh, of 1861. John Butterfield ended up keeping his mail contract and did not, obviously, go to Russell. But he did end up using a lot of the ponies' route across the Central Plains due to the Civil War because that blocked off the original route that he had taken. Mm. Uh, though it only lasted a brief year and a half or so, it left a very strong impression in the minds of not only Westerners who witnessed it, but also the American psyche Oh, as well. it's it's utterly iconic. It's romantic. I mean, it's it's um, it's awesome. It 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 basically is larger than life, and it kind of 
outgrew its own reality. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's part of the American mythology. Mm-hmm. In fact, even at the time, uh, Mark Twain, his real name, of course, was Samuel Clements. He wrote about how on, he was on a stagecoach and they could see this Pony Express rider coming from far away, this little speck on the horizon and coming closer and closer and closer and people started cheering and cheering from this stagecoach as he came by and he went <laughs> zooming past and everybody's cheering and waving and he just sort of raised his hand hi <laughs> he's like i'm trying to stay on my horse i'm tired whatever yeah well i don't think he had a problem staying on his horse but he was definitely tired um, so also as far as the riders go there were uh, not only lesser known eh, i mean if you're a Pony Express aficionado, like uh, Pony Bob Halsam and Johnny Fry, but there are also some young men who went on to greater fame as well. Uh, the most fo- famous of these guys, of course, would be uh, Buffalo Bill Cody. Oh, okay. He was quite the, uh, well, he made lots of claims. He claimed to have outridden Pony Bob Halsam, but he only made those claims about 20 years later. Yeah, well, he made, a, he was a good talker. He was. Never let facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, and, you know, even though the Pony Express succumbed to economics, uh, and perhaps, probably more importantly, it, it succumbed to technology with the completion of the transcontinental telegraph line, it's not something that's going to be forgotten very soon. And, you know, in the annals of man's endeavors to hasten communications, uh, it's something that, I mean, even to this day and age, mm-hmm. we're constantly striving to improve yeah yeah i mean didn't they do a, a stamp uh, at the like 100 year anniversary or something Didn't they do a commemorative stamp that had a pony express rider on it or something oh yeah yeah and i don't they've done that several times yeah and they even have a post office there at the at the pony express um museum museum and you can get a letter stamped with a pony express thing oh, very it, cool. which is pretty cool now they there's a lot of other neat sidelights to this one of them is that they do a Pony Express run every few years. Maybe it's every year. Do they do the whole route? I think so. Oh, wow. And something that I was definitely wanting to do some years ago, but I never got around to it back when I was young enough and my horses were young enough to actually do it, um, which would have been fun Mm because I would have been the first fry to do it in 150 years. Yeah, yeah, we could have done back when we lived in California. Yeah. Oh, well. Twister would have been good for that. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. Also, uh, I a can number do of three stages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Twister would have done that. Um, we were working on well, several of the films we've worked on over the years. Uh, several of the fellows were from Western Missouri, and or Missouri, pardon me. And um, having a conversation with one of them one time, I said, "Oh yeah, you know, we're talking about the Pony Express." And I said, "Yeah, I have a relative that was, you know, a Pony Express rider." And he said, "Really? Which one?" <laughs> Uh, uh, jo- Johnny Fry, and he just slapped himself in the forehead. <laughs> oh, duh! <laughs> and anyway, he was he was pretty impressed with that because he's you know amongst Pony sure. Express guys, he's quite quite famous. And he said, Duckworth, Dave, come over here. One of our other fellows, David Duckworth, had actually portrayed Johnny Fry several times oh, in some cool. of these things. So it was pretty neat. And he said, Yeah. Well, <laughs> He's my relative. Hi, nice to meet you. Oh, those ya. those guys actually worked on the 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 commemorative runs. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. David Duckworth portrayed Johnny Fry several times. Oh, cool. Which was 
pretty darn cool. And actually, he doesn't look that much different from him. It was actually, there's um, several good photographs of Johnny Fry. And um, what's really cool is he looks, spit an image of my grandfather oh. at the same age, at about 20 or so, 20 to 25. But David Duckworth mm, had a fair sure. resemblance, too. So it was actually pretty neat. Hmm. There's there's another photo that claims to be Johnny Fry, and it looks nothing like the fellow in the other photo. So I uh, think that's bogus, or at least they misappropriate, you know, misidentified, misidentified him. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So all kinds of neat, neat little things on that on the, the Pony Express. Oh, very good. So definitely something I grew up with hearing a lot about was the Pony Express, and then it came as a surprise to me that other people actually knew something about it too. Yeah. Well, cool. Anyway, that ought to do it for us for this episode. Well, for this segment, the anyway. The segment of this episode. Yeah. Uh, in the meanwhile, between recording, um, we had a split recording day. We did the first part of this episode a couple of days ago. Since 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 then, we actually finished up that miniseries on Ian Fleming. And it was really good. It was it was well done. I mean, they 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 say right at the you know the, in a disclaimer right at the beginning of each episode that they've changed a few names and dramatized a few events just for the sake of narrative. But I believe that they had to keep things pretty true to reality. And it's and it's an interesting story. He he had an interesting life and and contributed to the intelligence aspects of World War Two in some surprising ways. And you can really see that he took his experiences and his training and put, you know, you're when you write fiction, you're supposed to write what you know. And he didn't just make his bond out of thin air. He, he used a lot of things that he learned in his brief career in intelligence. I was disappointed that none of his bureaucratic enemies, though, had a white Persian cat. <laughs> ha! <laughs> we do, however. Yes, we do. Looking at him right now. Yeah. So so anyway, that um so that that's actually so again that's worth your time. Really enjoyed that. Um, also, a little uh, administrative note: we're going to be pulling back the frequency of our episodes a little bit. Instead of releasing every week, we're going to release episodes of the History Files every other week. Um, things have just gotten kind of hectic, and I'd rather release a good episode every other week than do some kind of half-baked thing every week. To, to kind of make up for that, I'm going to try to have us do a little special something on the other weeks, on the off weeks, a little, you know, one segment, some little, like, let's, we'll just talk about a movie or a TV show or a book or some little brief topic that we can cover in, you know, 15, 20 minutes, do a little special short segment thing. Sounds good. So it won't be an entire full episode, but at least it'll be something. And I'm going to try to do that, and it'll be one or the both of us doing that, too. So, yeah. Um, also, I'd like to give a shout-out to another PsyCon podcast that we get a kick out of listening to. He's um, Coffee with Jeff has over the last three weeks been doing some fun things about Hollywood B filmmaker Ed Wood. And most <laughs> people are familiar with Ed Wood. I've always, ever since I ran into Ed Wood's work, have found him very fascinating. I first came to him through Mystery Science Theater, like so many people in my age group. And uh, so he, uh, the first in his series is on just on Plan 9 from Outer Space. So that episode is really fun. A copy with Jeff. And then he did a two-parter on just Ed Wood himself. Really interesting. And he goes into a lot of detail. And if you're 
If you're not that familiar with Ed Wood's work, it's a great introduction. And and this day and age, it's easy to you know find his stuff out there. It's it's online. You can find um, things on YouTube. Of course, Mystery Science Theater, uh, Rift on. Well, two Ed Wood directed movies and one where it's obvious that he was a writer and he was involved because it's so Ed Wood. But yeah, lots lots of fun. Ed Wood was an interesting guy, and and <laughs> Got uh, that right. yeah, and Jeff does a nice, a really nice job talking about him. So check that out. That's over at PsyCon Coffee with Jeff. And uh, what else? Anything? That... Got anything else coming up? No, I can't think of anything offhand. Okay, yeah. All yeah. right. So join us next week for another exciting mini episode and then in two weeks a full episode of The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at SciCon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash T-H-F. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow.